everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to start looking at Streets of New Capenna. As always, there are notes available at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes that I'll be referencing as I talk through this on my own end. Getting into it, this set, for anyone who's not familiar, is about five... Uh, families that are three color pairs. Each family has a core mechanic that appears on their gold cards, as well as single color cards of each of the three colors that uh, comprise those gold cards. And there are also two colored gold cards. The two color gold cards never use the family mechanic, I believe. So terminology, each of the families, the three color groups, has a name. Bant, uh, white, blue, green, is called Brokers. Asper is called Obscura, that's uh, white, blue, black. Grixis is called Maestros, that's blue, black, red. Jund is called Riveters, uh, that's green, red, black. And Naya is called Cabaretti. That's uh, green, red, white. To use language that I suspect most listeners are familiar with, I'm going to be using their old shard names rather than the current Streets of New Capenna names. In the future, if it seems like people are more commonly using the Streets of New Capenna names, or I think that that's what people are going to be used to, I might switch. But while I'm introducing this new material, I'm going to be uh, just talking about uh, things using the names that I think most people are more familiar with, Bant, Esper, Grixis, Jund, and Naya. So the Esper mechanic is Connive. That's an ability that happens on creatures generally when they enter the battlefield, but sometimes under certain other conditions. You draw a card and discard a card. If the card that you discard is a non-land, the creature gets a plus one, plus one counter. This does, uh, there are a lot of parts of this that happen. Um, So like when you connive, you draw a card. So things that care about drawing a card trigger. You discard a card. So things that care about your graveyard happen. You have more cards in your graveyard. And you end up with a plus one, plus one counter. So things that care about plus one, plus one counters are enabled by this mechanic. This set makes really clever use of having these mechanics that kind of combine several parts or involve several different things happening, and then has different groups of colors care about different parts of what's implied in the full functionality of a mechanic. I'm going to explain a bit more about what I mean after just going over what the rest of the mechanics are. So Grixis has Casualty, That's an ability that appears on spells that allows you to sacrifice a creature to copy them. There is a a number that appears on the casualty cards. They have casualty sum number, and that refers to the power of a creature that must be sacrificed to get the uh, casual for the casualty to be legal or to happen. So this means that you're copying a spell and you're sacrificing a creature. Sacrificing a creature and playing a spell both fill your graveyard. It generates multiple spells happening, uh, which mostly doesn't matter, and it asks for creatures that you want to sacrifice and makes creatures die or get sacrificed. Blitz is the Jund mechanic that appears on creatures. 
it gives you the ability to pay a different cost to play the creature. The creature gains haste and also uh, gets sacrificed at the end of the turn. And also when the creature dies, you draw a card. So when you blitz something, you end up drawing a card, usually sacrificing a creature and having a creature enter the battlefield and getting to attack. And all of those things end up mattering different ways. Uh, the Naya mechanic is alliance. This is an ability word, meaning it doesn't have any actual functionality. It just appears before cards to group them together that tells you, or before rules text to group the rules text that tells you that these cards care about creatures entering the battlefield, which means that this ability works with creatures that are maybe temporarily entering the battlefield and replacing themselves for some reason, Blitz, and also anything that's like making a token. And then the Bant ability is Shield Counters. And this is a new kind of counter that makes your creatures more durable. When they have a shield creature, if they would be damaged or destroyed, you remove the shield counter instead. And mostly that gives you a counter and... So things that look for counters have this. It also gives your creatures a little more durability, which lets you invest in your creature a little bit more and makes your creatures a little more durable, which helps you end up with a few more creatures in play. I think that the other mechanics kind of pair or combine in more natural and elegant ways than the mechanics that are in the kind of green-white space and we'll get to like what that means and how it affected set design in a little bit. So because each of these mechanics is spread out among three colors and among uh, gold cards that require three colors of mana to ca uh, cast, you have to be all three colors to really focus on one of these mechanics. If you are playing Esper, you will have critical mass of cards with connive and you might find synergies that specifically look for conniving but if you are playing only blue white or only blue black you will have access to only part of the connive cards and you'll have you'll generally have to have a deck that looks at conniving and something else in the case of blue black Connive is the, so each of these mechanics appear most commonly on single color cards that are the center color. So uh, the center color of Esper, for example, is blue. It's blue and blue, blue's two, two allies. So more blue cards have connive than white or black cards. So you're mostly gonna find, like if you're mono blue, you're mostly gonna have connive. If you're mono black, you're mostly gonna have casualty. So if you're blue black, you're looking at the intersection of connive and casualty. And so we end up in this kind of weird spot where when you're playing three colors, you focus on a single mechanic, but when you're playing only two colors, you end up, because you have less access to that mechanic, even though you, it's, it, it's kind of weird to, that the deck with more colors ends up being more focused on a single mechanic. You'd think more colors means that you're spread more thin, you have more different stuff to play with. But because 
of how these mechanics are spread out. You have to be three colors to get all of it. If you don't get all of it, you only get part of it. If you only get part of it, you don't have critical mass. If you don't have critical mass, you have to find some something else going on. So the blue-black deck ends up combining connive and casualty. And so when you look at what connive does and what casualty does, both can like connive, you draw a card and you discard a card and you play, and then you also played a card and that card can go to the graveyard. You end up filling your graveyard more because you're uh, just like drawing extra cards and putting them straight in the graveyard. And then with casualty, you play a creature, you then play a spell that sacrifices the creature, both the creature and the spell go to your graveyard. You end up filling your graveyard. So with two mechanics that place things in your graveyard a lot, blue-black's me uh, mechanics and each of the color pairs was also kind of given its own unique mechanical space. Blue-black's mechanical space is to care about the graveyard. It has uh, a number of cards that specifically care about having five different casting costs in your graveyard, and then they have kind of their own version of threshold with that. So blue-black ends up looking at the intersection of those two things and then having this unique I care about uh, the number of cards with and specifically having different costs in my graveyard. And then because that's the thing that blue-black cares about, your Asper decks that, um, are, that care about connive might incidentally also end up caring about the blue-black thing, especially if they're more blue-black splash white, whereas your Grix, and then also your Grixis decks can care about the blue-black things, especially if they're blue-black splash red. If you're like black-red splash blue, you're going to be less about the blue-black thing and more about the red-black thing. And then you could be balanced and then you could care about them in any mix, or you could not care about either one and just care about like casualty, which is the Grixis thing. So you always end up in this space where your deck exists as an intersection of different things that you may or may not care about that exist in the like sphere of influence of your colors. Whether you're a three-color deck or a two-color deck, that's still going on. Like you're, If you're blue-black, you don't have access to all of the connive cards, and you do have focus on this graveyard thing. But that doesn't mean that in a particular draft, you're going to get the exact cards that care about your graveyard. And maybe you'll just see a lot of like blue and black cards that happen to care about connive. Or maybe you'll just see a really unusual number of cards that care. Well, I mean, you're as likely to care a lot about casualty as a lot about connive. So anyway, you end up just navigating your unique mix in any given draft or deck of how you're using and which of these mechanics you're caring about. There are general trends, but there's also a lot of flexibility. And that, in my ex experience and opinion, tends to lead to really good draft formats because it allows for smooth pivots and transitions where what you're focusing on can slowly evolve throughout the course of a draft. And you don't necessarily have to abandon elements that you started with a little bit of, but you can find other things that you lean more into. And you can maybe have a card that ends up not playing quite as well as you imagined it might if you'd fully leaned into what it's doing, but you can still cast it and it's still okay. And it becomes, you know, a playable card in your deck rather than a star in your deck because of the way that the rest of your draft developed. And then presumably as a result, you have some other cards that ended up really shining in your deck because you're leaning into supporting their mechanics. So first of all, I think that this set is 
really, really, really well crafted and well put together. I think they did a fantastic job of finding mechanics with natural overlaps and synergies between them. And I think that this uh, set does a really, really good job of making the 10 archetypes that it supports, which are each of the two allied color pairs, each of the five three color arcs, all have a different thing that they're about and play really, really differently. And I think it's really impressive to have like Esper and Grixis play really differently and feel really unique when they share two colors of cards. Like they're just not that different on paper, but uh, because of the significance of the gold cards and having different access to different gold cards and just where just the density of things that they have, they end up really leaning into different mechanical space and the incentives to play the monocolor cards that support the thing that you're doing are very strong such that there are a lot of like monocolored cards that might be great in one of the archetypes um, or uh, color combinations and really, really bad in another. Um, for example, I'm going to be struggling with names while knowing what things are. I'm going to try to be referencing some of them on the fly as it comes up. Expendable Lackey, the blue 1-1 human citizen. You can spend one in a blue to exile it from your graveyard to create a 1-1 blue fish creature with uh, this creature can't be blocked, activate only as a sorcery. This card has dual use in, or has multiple uses in different places. It's a one mana card when it's in your graveyard, and there are not a lot of good one mana spells in this format. So it's good at enabling the blue-black diversity of costs thing by being a one mana card in your graveyard. And it can go to your graveyard very easily because of connive, and you can get value out of putting it in your graveyard while sacrificing it to connive. You can also put it directly into your graveyard by, or sorry, not connive, casualty. But you can also put it directly into your graveyard by discarding it with connive. And then if you do either of those things, you can get value by exiling it from your graveyard to make a 1-1. And uh, so this card actually plays pretty well in decks that are conniving just because you're looking for stuff to want to discard and casualty because you're looking to stuff for stuff that you want to sacrifice. But if you're not doing one of those things, if, for example, you are playing Bant and your deck is about counters, Expendable Lackey is a really bad card, unless you happen to have a lot of connive and you're just like, actually, I'm going to be happy about holding on to this and discarding it. But even then, the value that you get out of discarding this doesn't contribute very meaningfully to your game plan. So um, you end up with this card that is, you know, theoretically totally like easily to cast in your Bant deck and a really good card in some of your Grixis and Esper decks, but just not what your Bant deck is interesting. And so it's like, you know, no, you you wouldn't you wouldn't play it. So you don't you don't spend a pick on it. Even though it might be an actively high pick in a Grixis deck, it's bad in a Bant deck. And there are most of the cards, or at least very, very many of the cards, certainly not all of them, for example, imposing overseer, the uh I suspect somewhat infamous at this point, three mana two one flying common that gains life and draws a card when you play it. That, the rate on that card is great. It's going to be good in any white deck. But most of the commons, I would argue, that are monocolor 
are pretty clearly intended for some subsection of decks that might want to use them. I think just generally, as far as, you know, what do you think of just like the design of this set on kind of like an aesthetic theoretical level? To what extent did it succeed at any goals that it might have had or that I think it should have had? I think it's very, very cleverly put together. And I think that that means that it'll be very fun to draft because I think that a lot of the stuff that impresses me about it is stuff that will lead to a good draft format. Like I was saying about how it allows you to pivot in um, pretty smooth and interesting ways. I think that my plan in general while drafting this set will be to start, you know, one or two colors and then look for a reason to go into a third color. And while I'm in a third color, generally still try to be base two of the colors and then potentially, you know, be open to expanding into more colors as I have a reason to. That's assuming that I don't see a really, really powerful three-color card early. If I see a really powerful three-color card early, that would just give me an immediate reason to expand into three colors. And then I'll be kind of, I know that I want to be this, but still looking to kind of find a solid base most likely, or looking for a lot of fix if I'm starting with three colors. There are a lot of different ways to like navigate. How much do you want to prioritize fixing and your optionality about playing additional colors? And, you know, there, there's going to be some amount of figuring out, like, in general, do I think two color decks or three color decks are better? I think the answer is usually going to be three, but is it balanced three or is it base two splashing a third for gold cards? A little more ambiguous. Is it balanced to, is it base two splashing in both directions for gold cards? Also very possible. Then there will also be some number of players who I suspect will default to prioritizing mana fixing very highly and just playing any good gold cards they get regardless of color because the tools to do that do exist. I'm going to go into a small digression here without having finished some of my... Sorry, there, there are a lot of tangents. This is a little rambly. Apologies, but it is what it is. I think that the cycle of five to seven mana common creatures that you can exile from your hand to let a land tap for any of three different colors of mana and then you can cast them from exile are extremely significant and i think that they are like good cards i think that the format is kind of balanced around them existing and being playable and uh, treating them as cards that you should never put in your deck would be a large mistake they do a really 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 good job of fixing your mana early and they give you pretty good late game at a pretty good rate for a common. And notably, if you are playing a two-color deck with zero sources of a third color of mana in, like, say, your lands, you can still play two of those three-color gold cards with kind of only themselves as fixing. So, like, if you're playing blue-black, you can play the blue-white-black or blue-red-black common in that cycle. And then whenever you draw it, you have to spend two mana to exile it. But then you'll be able to use the land that you put it on to get the color that you don't have and then cast them. If you don't have any lands that can tap for the color that you're missing, it will essentially cost two extra mana all the time, which is going to be an issue if you like top deck it because you'll 
you know, unless you have two more mana that is cast and cost, you won't be able to play it right then. But as far as if you draw it early in the game, you can play it, it'll fix your mana for a while, and then you can cast it late. So that means that any deck, whether you're two color or three color, can kind of have more late game if you want it by playing those cards. And also better mana. Going back a little bit to going through the two color pairs and how they interact with the mechanics and what they're about. So I covered blue-black. I usually don't start with blue-black, but I did for some reason. So blue-white is the intersection of shield counters and connive. Both of those things make counters. So uh, blue-white is about counters. Sometimes it cares about counters, about diversity of counters. Sometimes it just like cares about, you know, number of counters or having counters or whatever. There's also space that exists here and to some extent in Bant that is like, there are a lot of keywords here and a lot of ways to pump creatures. And notably, there are multiple uncommons that have double strike. This is more of a Bant thing than a blue-white thing, but Bant can play as kind of double strike combo, uh, which I guess is sort of a, you know, now that I'm using the word Bant goes back to the days of Rafiq of the many. Yeah, anything that, you know, there are things that put plus one plus one counters on things and just like good pump spells and the blue common that turns a creature into a 4-4 flying artifact angel till end of turn and you draw a card, kind of the set suit up is very, very, very strong on a double striker, of course. Um, you just hit for eight in the air and draw a card. Uh, that, that's called Majestic Metamorphosis. You know, there's some amount of just like look for keywords, protect creatures with keywords with shield, or, you know, they protect themselves with shield and then you pump them up. But in general, blue-white is about counters. Red-black is the intersection of casualty and blitz. Those play pretty well. If you have casualty cards, you're looking for creatures to sacrifice. If you blitz a creature in, it's going to die anyway. So if you sacrifice it to casualty, you get extra value out of it and you still get to draw the card off the blitz because it's not draw a card when you sacrifice it at the end of the turn to the blitz thing. It's just draw a card whenever it dies. The troubled part here when you're trying to combine casualty and blitz is that you have to pay the mana for both of those things in the same turn, which uh, especially for a red-black deck is asking a lot of mana, which is to say that it's maybe if you're trying to combine Blitz and Casualty for value in that way, you maybe want to think about being in the like more attrition end of red-black rather than the like aggro end of red-black, because that's where you're really going to get, you know, have enough mana to combine your Blitz and your, your Casualty. Incidentally, this is a set where because uh, there are some just like creatures with the ability to sacrifice other creatures and also there is an entire mechanic that asks you to sacrifice creatures this is a really really good set for threatened so good that the uh, threat that exists is uncommon rather than common and because the threatened is uncommon it's hard to say that like oh steel sack is a really good archetype but the sack part is just going to be there whether you have the stealing or not so the threat and uncommon is just a really good card so red black 
isn't necessarily about being steel and sack, but anytime you have the opportunity to, you'll be very happy about that. But yeah, so red, red, black is about sacrificing creatures. You can do that. You can, you know, have stuff that triggers when you sacrifice a creature and you can make that happen just by blitzing something or just by playing a card with casualty. If you play a longer game, you'll get to get max value by combining blitz and casualty. So you might want to think about being more controlling with your red and black decks. Red green is about blitz and alliance. Uh, alliance is the thing that just triggers when you play a creature. The thing about blitzing is that because the creature replaces itself, it's theoretically drawing you into more creatures to keep having more alliance triggers. So red-green is to some extent about creatures entering the battlefield. That theme is a little bit loose. Alliance in general is a little bit loose. And so additional kind of sub-themes were created to kind of like mask how loose of an ability alliance is where red green ends up kind of being about treasures and green white which we'll get to uh green white well let's just get to it right now green white is the intersection of alliance and shield and there's not a lot of mechanical intersection between i want creatures to enter the battlefield and sometimes they have a shield that's just that's just not a thing uh so because they wanted something to exist in this emergent way out of all the two color pairs well, they didn't quite get there and they had to just create something else for green white to be so they made this like citizens matters thing that is what's going on in green white it is what it is i would consider it like a minor aesthetic blemish on this kind of like natural emergence synergy that's captured most of the rest of the set but that's not really going to negatively impact most aspects of like the gameplay so whatever green white cares about citizens to some extent red green cares about treasures to some extent all of the kind of Naya space, I think, is going to be the more aggressive portion of this format. Uh, I think like red, green and green, white are going to be uh, on the more aggressive side. And both are going to be looking to do a little bit of go wide, which is kind of what Cabaretti is about. Speaking of, let's talk about the three color combinations. I mentioned that they're going to be leaning more on their mechanics, but let's talk about like what that happened, what that means strategically. Asper cares about like drawing cards and graveyards, maybe counters a bit. All of that stuff is points to pretty controlling. I think Esper in general is a very, very controlling uh, archetype and combination across magic in general. And that holds true very much in this set. Grixis, Different vibe, also controlling. Cares about like recursion, spells, graveyard, sacrificing. I think it's going to be, I think blue, I think Esper is going to be a little bit more just like kind of like board stall control where you're going to want like blockers and flyers and, uh, you know, have kind of like powerful creatures that end the game, like the 4-4 flying tricolor common. Uh, whereas Grixis is controlling, but it's controlling in a much more attrition kind of way. Basically, like if you want to talk big game versus small game, Esper is pretty happy to have a crowded bat battlefield where no one can really get through on the ground and they're just able to attack with big flyers. Whereas uh, Grixis is playing more of a small game and they're more happy to have an empty battlefield that ends up being more about spells rather than about creatures. So... Both control decks, but with really different game play patterns and um, expected or desired board states. Jund is generally pretty aggressive because Blitz gives you a lot of damage output. But basically, there, there are kind of like two subsets of Blitz cards. There are the cards that you Blitz for damage, like creatures that 
when they attack, you can uh, stop the creature from blocking. And then creatures that you blitz for value, like creatures that uh, when they die, they give you a creature or a treasure or something. For example, Girder Goons is the five mana 4-4, four, four, uh, Ogre Warrior in black. When it dies, you make a tap 2-2 two, two black rogue creature token. So this is kind of a striped bear, a four mana 2-2 two, two that draws a card, except the 2-2 two, two enters the battlefield tapped and you've got to attack with your opponent with a 4-4. Four, four. An aggressive deck, you might be like, sweet, that's four mana to, it, it blitzes for four. You might be like, sweet, that's four mana to hit my opponent for four damage and I get a, I get a guy left over. In a control deck, you might be like, sweet, this is a 2-2 two, two for four that draws a card and I, might, and I also just hit my opponent, that's cool. So you can focus on caring more about the upfront damage or caring more about the uh, leftover value. Whereas some of the other Blitz creatures, it's, it's more obvious what you care about. When you Blitz like a Menace creature that pumps another attack, another creature when it attacks, you're not doing that for the long-term value, you're doing that to damage your opponent. And, you know, there's a mix here. John can care more about the Mayhem Patrol is the card that I was referencing. That's just like an example of something that's just doing damage. Mayhem Patrol and Plasma Jockey are both really good examples. Mayhem Patrol is one in red, one, two menace. When it attacks, target creature gets plus one, plus zero until end of turn, blitz for one in a red. And then Plasma Jockey is three in a red for a three, one. When it attacks, target creature and opponent controls can't block this turn, blitz for two in a red. If you have a bunch of Mayhem Patrols and Plasma Jockeys in your deck, you're an aggressive deck. The, these creatures have no defensive play to them. You can blitz them to deal a bunch of damage right now and draw a card, or you can cast them as a normal attacker, that it, a normal creature that specifically has attack triggers and attacks well. Because Jund has a lot of, you know, Mayhem Double and Plasma Jockey types of cards, it's usually going to be aggressive. But it's possible to have more Girder Goons type cards and care a little bit more about using your Blitz to generate you know, value and the sacrifice synergies that I talked about in red, black and stuff. So I think that it can go a little more mid range and it's very, very easy for it to go a little bigger. You know, red, green is often about big creatures. Red, green in this set's about treasures. There's a lot of space for John to be rather than like, you know, low to the ground aggro for it to be kind of big aggro, especially because if you're blitzing these creatures, you're not building up your battlefield and you are drawing more cards. When you draw more cards, some portion of those are lands. And if you are cycling your spells to draw more lands, one outcome of that is you could flood out. Another outcome of that is you could consistently hit your land drops so you have mana to cast expensive creatures. So it's probably better to do the one that ends in something positive rather than the one that ends in something negative. So it's a reason to maybe go a little higher on the curve for your deck that's like ostensibly aggressive if you're blitzing a lot to take advantage of the card draw from those blitzes, which is another reason that John can end up being a little bit bigger than the other aggro decks. So John can end up a little more mid-range because its curve's a little bit higher and it has a little more of those, you know, like value stuff, a little more card drawing because of the blitz. So Esper and Grixis, very control. John, more aggressive, a little mid-range. Cabaretti, more aggressive, though this also has uh, substantial go-wide elements and uh, token creation. And going back to like thinking about the distinction between Esper and Grixis, where Esper is big game, Grixis is small game. Same distinction exists in Cabaretti versus, well, Naya versus Jund. 
where Naya as a Goai deck wants a big game, a large board, a lot of creatures in play, Jund by virtue of Blitz and creatures that just like you spend your mana and you don't build up your board. You spend your mana and you get an immediate impact, but then the creature goes away, so you haven't contributed to your battlefield. That's going to lead to a little bit more of a small game versus Naya's big game. So Naya's big game aggro, Jund is small game aggro, Grixis is small game control, Esper is big game control. Um, so you have a nice little like you know four square thing of those whatever so then how does bant fit in uh, well bant i think is actually pretty flexible in terms of like whether it's more aggressive or more controlling if it's more green white a little more aggressive more uh white blue a little more controlling but in my experience when i played uh, Bant sealed in a like sealed pre-release event um, with a seated pack. I ended up being um, more like double strike combo. So kind of the like combo aggro space. Also, I, I opened three of the two one flyer that gains life and draws a card. So also I just had a value flying game. So a little evasive, a little like tricks combo-y. Um, uh, a little, a little, just like you know, uh, eggs in one basket type. Go, go tall. I, I think that it's going to be fairly common for Bant to be go either go over in the sense of go high as and have flyers, or go tall in the sense of build up a thing, either long term through counters or short term through tricks or a mix of those things. So as far as like how that factors into my square for the other archetypes, yeah, whatever. It is what it is. Um, so I think that covers kind of the overview of all the archetypes as well as kind of just my like theoretical overview of what I think is going on in the set and why it's cool. So I think that means it's time to turn it over to Twitch chat for any questions. I've generally tried to avoid any sort of like deep dives on single cards. I don't really want that to be the focus, but if there are specific cards that people are really interested in, I can answer about a few specific cards. Overall questions, of course, are great. So uh, anyone with me here on Twitch who has any questions, please get those in the chat now uh, while I'm waiting for that and letting people have time to think and type that out. I do want to thank the newest patrons of the podcast, Derek and Ishurian. Really appreciate the support. If anyone else is into the podcast, getting value, looking to give back, support the uh, podcast, check out the Patreon. Alternatively, if you're just looking to get some cool perks and benefits, check out what we offer at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and see if it seems like good value to you. As we get into a new set, I do want to throw out a little reminder that I have added, as of the previous set, rewards to the Patreon that are discounts to coaching sessions. I offer coaching sessions to anyone, regardless of whether they are a patron of the podcast or not. But if you are interested in that, it'll be cheaper if you uh, join the Patreon than if you don't. So that's there if you're looking to dive deeper into your personal game with some feedback. All right, questions from chat. Do you suspect that efficient two-color decks are going to punish three-plus color decks? So the implication here is that it's going to take a while for three-color decks to like get their mana on, and two-color decks are going to be able to just like get in under them the same way that in Neon Dynasty, you know, cheap creatures could get in before sagas happened from the decks that were leaning on sagas. 
The issue is that there are not very many one drops and they are not great and or not that aggressive. The A lot of the one drops are of the cycle uh, where you can spend a bunch of mana to make them better and they kind of suck before you do that. And those cards are not very good at punishing people. You know, we, this isn't a set with like, you know, one one flyers and two one ground creatures for one. Uh, the set's not super well constructed to really punish someone for playing a tapped land or for spending mana on fixing in some capacity. So I mostly don't think that the format's going to go in such a way where the two color decks are specifically more aggressive and punishing other decks by being aggressive. I do think that they will have a little more consistency, not have to spend picks as highly on fixing and be able to spend those picks on powerful cards. And so they might be able to compete by focusing on like the powerful cards that they got early, but it's still hard for two color cards to compete with just like the strength of three color cards in limited. I have done exactly one draft. I drafted a two color deck. Uh, I drafted red green. My deck sucked and I did not do very well and it was not very fun. Um, like playing the deck. Drafting is fun and everything. It wasn't an indictment of the set. But I think that most two-color decks are often going to want to splash because I do think the three-color cards are very good. And I, I was red-green. I was trying to be very aggressive. I did not feel like it was easy to do a very good job of punishing people. Again, because they're just like there aren't really one mana threats, and like the two mana creatures are mostly like bears. Like it, there, there are some that hit harder than that, but for the most part, the set's just not designed someone to t designed to take time to pun uh, or to, not designed to punish someone for taking some time to set up. Like that's not to say that you can't be aggressive. It's just to say that like the things that you get out of like not not playing a tap land on turn one don't contribute very much to that uh, like better speed and better aggression. I think the format's actually designed pretty well in terms of there being an enormous amount of fixing and like aggressive cards that cost two or three mana uh, that like you can be aggressive, but aggressive isn't super low curve or super, super fast. And so while there are aggressive decks that can punish slow decks, it's less about two-color aggro decks punishing three-color decks. I've had in sealed three-color decks that were very, very, very good at uh, putting down early blockers. Like I had an Esper deck that had uh, multiple copies of the blue two-mana three-three that can only attack if you have multiple creatures with counters on it and really consistent mana. And uh, so rather than, like I had a lot of dual lands, and so rather than needing to spend my turn two, like exiling a creature to make, to fix a land, I was able to spend my turn two pretty reliably playing a really efficient blocker. And so when I built that deck that way, I knew that it would be good against aggressive decks, even though I'm three color. Whereas I've had other decks that have to spend a little bit more uh, mana getting set up and... Uh, maybe like play cheap creatures that are small to sacrifice rather than cheap creatures that are large to block. And it was clear that I needed 
a better catch-up plan against aggressive decks or could be punished more by aggressive decks. So specifically, like when I played a Grixis deck, I had to side in some cards to help defend myself when I played against aggressive decks. And I ended up uh, winning all my matches, but I was winning them 2-1 where the aggressive decks could catch me off guard. Whereas when I played Esper and I was just set up for aggressive decks, I didn't lose any games or have to sideboard at all. People just couldn't get under me. So that's, that's what I have to say about the structure of aggression in this format. How much of a cost are the three color cards in terms of difficulty to cast? Do you think there's ample fixing to support them? How much should we be knocking cards for being three colors early in the draft? If you want to support three color cards in this format, it is trivially easy to do so unless you're in a draft where uh, fixing is being taken incredibly highly, I believe. This is biased by my experience with sealed, as I've played a lot more sealed than draft at this point, but I believe that there is a lot of powerful fixing, and uh, it seems, based on like the my experience in sealed and uh, both in the decks that I personally played with and building sealed for pools for a lot of other people, it seemed like the mana was consistently very, very easy, both for three-color decks and if you wanted to splash. I, it really felt like uh, it is extremely safe to take a three-color card and plan to cast it. It also seemed pretty safe to play more than three colors if you were willing to prioritize fixing. Uh, so as far as like how much should you be knocking a card for being three colors, it's much less about I might have trouble casting this and much more about I'm committing to, you know, if I'm playing a shard, it's exactly this shard. Whereas if you take a one color card or two color card, you can end up in more different places and still use the card that you drafted. So it, it's just like with taking a gold card in a two color set where it's not, oh no, how am I ever going to cast this blue-black card? It's just, well, now I'm drafting blue-black. Whereas here, it's like, well, it's not going to be hard for me to cast this Cabaretti card, but now I'm playing Cabaretti. What do you think about the various types of removal set and how they interact with family mechanics, such as shield counters, weakening destroy effects, or sacrifice making enchantment removal worse? I think that it is true that those things are happening. So there are some things that give like minus X, minus X, or minus... Uh, you know, and minus X or whatever. And those are nice as ways to get around shield. You know, only a fifth of your opponents are going to have a lot of shield things. Uh, like certain creatures will line up well against certain removal spells, but most creatures will be affected by most removal spells. I think that that stuff is going to matter quite a bit in best of three drafting, where there will you know, definitely be times where it's like, oh, I'm playing against someone with a bunch of casualty. I should not play this enchantment thing. Or, oh, I'm playing something with a bunch of shield counters. Murder is actually like maybe not as good for me as uh, the minus three, minus three, mill three card. But uh, as far as like general card evaluations, I don't know. I mean, all the cards have to be evaluated on their individual merits. Just like how strong is this effect in context? the those things inform the context but i don't have any like great conclusions outside of like you know like this is plus x percent on this card being worse than it would be in another format but i'm not really interested in how good it would be in another format except where i have a baseline for evaluating murder and now i need to adjust that baseline if i'm trying to use that baseline as a shortcut rather than just draw on my experience in this format i don't know it matters how do I think removal lines up in this format? I guess that's kind of the same question. Uh, 
I think that you're playing limited. It's cool to be able to answer creatures, but I also think, based on my experience streaming, that the average player uh, worries more about like, do I have enough removal for some kind of like abstract concrete number? <laughs> abstract concrete, whatever. Uh, some some kind of arbitrary precise number that I have in my head is like the quantity of removal spells that I need, which is just like not really how I think. Uh, I think, what is my deck's game plan? Do I have the cards that allow that game plan to function? Do I have like, how much am I going to need to have a removal spell for my opponent's creatures in the course of most games to be able to execute my game plan? And so there will be some game plans that rely more heavily on removal than others. If you're wondering like, well, when, which is that? Uh, think about what I was saying about big games and small games. And in general, the more, if you're a small game deck, you care more about uh, answers than if you're a big game deck. But if you're a control deck, you care more about answers than if you're an aggressive deck. So like Esper, despite being a big game deck, does still want some way to answer opponents' things because you're going to like play a long game and they might cast a bomb. But you won't need anywhere near as much removal as you will if you're trying to play a small a small game because you need to be able to like keep your opponent's game small. So. And that's just kind of what playing a small game is, is having removal spells. Next up, I'm predicting blue-white is going to be the best color combo. Blue-white-green and blue-white-black both seem really good with flyer archetypes. Not really a question. <laughs> uh, I believe that uh, those color combinations likely particularly shined and sealed. I have no real... Uh, I don't have a strong opinion about whether they're better than other decks in draft. Set is very good, very heavy on good three drops. That is a true statement about this set and three color sets in general. Do I think the fixing means the set could turn into just draft every good card and figure it out, similar to how some drafted Neon Dynasty, or is it too structured into the families? I think that it will not be correct for every player in every draft to draft five color pile, because I think that there really are strong incentives to so my experience with sealed was oh i have a lot of fixing i could splash stuff should i just play all my good cards well let's start by looking at kind of like well so when i do that i have too many playables so let's start by just kind of like you know paring this down or highlighting on my best cards and then kind of expand from there and oh i have just like a good deck in three colors i don't need to play more and all of these cards kind of work together, and if I put cards from other colors in, they don't work as well together. Now, sealed is different than draft uh, in terms of like how many playables I have and stuff. That's not really how drafting works. But the experience that was relevant was, oh, if I put these other color cards in, they just don't play with what I'm trying to do. I think there's a lot of that. Like the thing that I was saying uh, uh, earlier about Expendable Lackey, being good in some blue decks, but not good in all blue decks, I think that applies to just a huge number of cards, such that if you don't focus on a thing, it's very hard to evaluate which cards are good or make the most out of the cards that you have. And so I think that it's e much easier to uh, lean into and support strong synergies if you focus on a family or color pair or some kind of strategy. That said, if you're in a seat where you just get like really strong bombs that are three color cards that are in, you know, three different families that span across five colors, 
uh, there's a good chance that you should just be like, well, I want to play all these bombs, so I'm just going to prioritize fixing and staying alive to play these bombs, and I'm just going to draft a five-color control deck, and it's going to work out. But I don't think that you should do that unless something like that happens where you know you're getting paid to do it. I do think that there will be some players who prioritize fixing really highly to be in a spot to take advantage of getting past good cards. And I think that that'll work out well for them in drafts where they get past good cards and will work out not very well for them in the drafts where you just like never end up seeing a good rare. Next question, how good are shield counters? How much of a card is it worth generally? I am going to guess that that's very matchup dependent and that the value of a shield counter is very much a function of the value of the creature that the shield counter is on. Like, so for example, there's the Bant mana, three mana, two one creature with double strike and a shield counter. And the fact that it has double strike means you attack with it and it has a shield counter. Your opponent can't chump block with a one one to take that shield counter off of it because you kill it with first strike. And so the fact that like if they want to just trade away a creature to take away the shield counter they have to use at least a three toughness creature that means that you end up getting a lot of value off of that shield counter and off of that double striker in general whereas if it were just on a 2-2 creature or even on a 4-4 creature the shield counter itself might not add that much because if your opponent has like a 1-1 they can just chump block with the 1-1 to take away the shield counter so shield counters are very contextual and then there are also a lot of cards that just like check to see if a shield counter is there or care about the number of counters that you have or something. And the more that you have, the more value you're getting out of a shield counter. So I, I don't think there's an answer to a shield counter is worth n cards or n mana. It, it, it's really contextual. If you play a bomb and that bomb has a shield counter, that bomb is more likely to live. That shield counter is doing a lot more than if you have a 2-1 flyer and it has a shield counter and your opponent's like, okay, I guess I won't kill it. I don't care. Um, and the other thing is, if you have one toughness, the shield counter is a lot worse than if you have two uh, toughness, specifically if your opponent has the uncommon Night Clubber, which is a creature that gives uh, all of your opponent's creatures minus one, minus one, which I mention because against multiple opponents when I was playing a uh, Bant deck with a lot of shield counters, my opponents had Night Clubber and my deck had like 9-1 toughness creatures and it absolutely demolished me. The shield counter was really not valuable in that particular exchange. Next up, do you think enchantment hate is more important in this set than normal, uh, like main deck Broken Wings? So probably not. Nothing comes to mind as a reason that uh, enchantment hate would be particularly important. Like, there are some enchantments that are removal spells, but casualties kind of punishing them anyway. There are some rare cycles that are enchantments, like the hideaway cycle and the ascendancy cycle, but I think many of the cards in those cycles aren't very good. So, like, I'm sure that there are some specific rares that people might have lost to where they were like, oh, I really want a way to deal with that. But I, I don't, nothing about my experience with this set leads me to think that, like, uh, enchantments are more important than an average set. If, I mean, I, I think in general, the question with Broken Wings is more about flyers than enchantments anyway. 
but uh, I, I don't think that this is a cyber enchantments are particularly relevant compared to normal. Uh, do you think this is an 18 land format? First impression, not really, but there are... Let's talk about cards that would structurally push you toward more lands or fewer lands. The cycle of expensive commons that fix your mana pushes you toward not needing as many lands to make your mana work, but wanting more lands because you have an expensive card to play. The existence of the Blitz mechanic pushes you toward not needing to play more lands because your cards draw cards more. The existence of the Connive mechanic draws extra cards and specifically asks you to draw spell to discard spells and keep lands, which means that it kind of leads to flooding out, so it wants you to play fewer lands. So Connive and Blitz both pressure you toward fewer lands. Alliance pressures you toward more creatures, which implicitly slightly pushes you toward fewer lands, but very slightly. The others I don't think matter. Lands that can sacrifice from play to draw a card, that common cycle of duels, push you toward playing more lands because you get punished less for drawing too many lands because you can sacrifice them. When you combine all of this, I think the effect is the number of lands you want is pretty normal. Uh, so I think that it's going to be a usually 17 on average, occasionally 16 or 18, but I think a vast majority of the time I will just default to 17 lands in this format. Thoughts on Quick Draw Dagger? MJ was saying it was format warping. Okay, so Quick Draw Dagger is the equipment that gives a creature plus one plus one, automatically attaches and gives first strike when it attaches. And at some point in my stream, someone asked me if I thought that it was a problem. And I had no idea where that question was coming from. Presumably that question was coming from MJ saying it was format warping. So having seen that, I thought that I, I was surprised. It didn't seem it didn't seem like an especially strong card to me. I was very confused by the idea that it would be a problem. But I drafted a two-color uh, aggressive deck. I had access to one pretty late in a draft. I took it and I tried playing it. And it was honestly awful for me. Like, not just unimpressive or like not game-breaking. It was actively horrible. It was, I don't, I drew it, I think, multiple times and never found a useful time to cast it at all. It was specifically worse because I had three copies of the two mana 2-2 two two that you could spend two, uh, two mana to pump for the turn. So my opponent was already playing around. I can spend mana to make my creature 1-1 one, one bigger. But yeah, it was bad, like real bad. It doesn't strike me as a card that's likely to be format warping, but it could be better than my one experience with it would indicate, of course. Next question, do you think this is a Prince or Popper format? I honestly still haven't even read all the rares, so it's really hard for me to say how like format-defining I think the rares are going to be. Sealed generally ends up revolving more around rares than draft, and I would say that the sealed games that I played, there were some games that I was just fully bailed out by a mythic, but there were a lot of games that I played where I won 
because of uh, uncommon synergy or like just a two card combo that happened at common or uncommon games that were determined by just like my opponent had a bunch of blitzers games that I won just based off of well I cast multiple of the very high impact three colored like six and seven mana commons so um, my experience was in sealed a relatively large number of games were determined by commons. I'm not really, I, I'm quite resistant to uh, the utility of like thinking about things as prints or proper formats or bothering to mentally define them that way. But I, I would say that this set felt like pretty normal slash not especially like rare focused. How do I feel about the board wipes in draft, both Nightclubber and the white one? You are massively understating the number of sweepers that exist in this format. It's it's not just uh, bone. So Nightclubber is barely a sweeper. It's uh, like there are some decks that it's devastating against, but it's just minus one, minus one. That said, there are like a really large number of sweepers. There's uh, the Grixis one that is really easy to be a plague wind. There's the red-black exile creature in your graveyard to do damage. There's the white one that, like, you players who have multicolored creatures draw, and then it's a wrath. There's the Naya one that deals three damage to all non-token creatures. And I, I don't, I, I doubt that's all of them. Uh, this format is very heavy on sweepers. You should actively think about, like, uh, the potential that your opponent will have some kind of wrath when uh, you're ahead and thinking about how much you should extend. There, there are some formats with few sweepers. This is on the very, very high end of sweepers for a limited set. Is there anything to keep in mind about reading signals from the table differently in a three-color format? It's a good question. Pay attention. <laughs> Both just like, you know, pay a lot of attention to the cards that you open and pass and uh, whether any of the three color cards that are like just which three color cards are tabling, whether you see th three color cards late, the more like gold cards in general are pretty strong indicators about exactly which colors people are playing. Like if all the cards at a table are monocolored, you can when you see stuff late, you can know okay, not that many people are drafting this color probably, but you still don't know like which pairs people are in. Whereas when you start seeing oh this. I'm seeing multiple packs in a row that have like one or two uh, three color cards from the same family. It's a really, really clear message that no one's drafting that family. And if you're in a spot to pivot into it, you probably should. So I, I think that, you know, just really watch the gold cards because they will send strong signals, but also learn which commons to think of as gold cards. And by the way, a lot of the commons literally have watermarks <laughs> that tell you uh, what family they're part of. Note that the, the way the watermarks work in the set is if they have the family's mechanic or they are the cycle that uh, costs hybrid mana to activate, then they and they're, they're monocolor, then they have the family watermark, otherwise they don't. So there are cards that won't have a watermark that are best in certain families or whatever. And you can kind of read, you can read a little bit into those. But you, it's very, very easy to deduce information from, you know, just which, which three color gold cards you're seeing late. Oh, that's an interesting question. So next question is, do I think there's a space for a deck that wasn't curated, um, like an off color pair, like play black, white or black, green? I haven't thought about it. I haven't been incentivized to think about it. 
I would be surprised. It's really, really hard to just be like, well, there were no intended synergies and I get no gold cards. And if I splash one card, one color that I have abundant fixing for, I would get gold cards in that three color thing plus two other sets of gold cards first these zero gold cards i have like it's just so hard to imagine that you'd want to be two color enemy color and not splash their shared ally that i suspect it will essentially never happen uh, i think basically as close to a hard no as i could give um is the answer but i do think it's good to think about do the colors and color pairs seem deep enough to support overlap and two color pairs plus family decks at the same table? So you're saying basically like, can there be both a Grixis deck and a Demir deck at the same table? I think that, you know, generally a table will support two drafters of a given archetype unless that archetype is, uh, is like one of the weaker archetypes. And so if a Demir plus, if two uh, Grixis decks could be supported, then certainly a Grixis deck and a Demir deck could be supported. As to, you know, once you get a third person in that space, does it start causing problems? Or like, you know, if you have like a Grixis deck and a Demir deck and an Esper deck, like where does it fall apart? Honestly, uh, I, I don't have enough information to weigh in on that without knowing how well-balanced the uh, archetypes are to begin with. And I also haven't done like a deep dive to figure out like how deep each of them are. Don't know is the primary answer to that question. Next question. Do I think the equipment gives plus three, plus three and taps uh, like cement boots or something along those lines is specifically designed for the blitz mechanic? Yes. Yes, I do. I think that it's like potentially playable if you're making a bunch of 1-1 tokens, but its purpose is for blitzing. Uh, like it functionally reads like your blitz guys have plus three, plus three for, they have like kicker two, get plus three, plus three. Is this a disdainful stroke main deck in sealed format? I played it main and cited it out. So maybe. The creatures, the creature cycle that modifies your lands, um, that like the, that fixes and then is a big creature to cast. Should you draft it as mana fixing or the creature first? It turns out when you take a card, you're actually taking it. You don't need to justify it to anyone. You just select it and it's in your pile, and then you can use it however you want. So you're kind of definitionally drafting it for both of those things simultaneously. Sometimes you will be in a spot where the thing that you want is a big creature, and sometimes you'll be in a spot where the thing that you want is fixing. And you don't always need to decide, uh, slash neither one of them really takes priority in aggregate. All right, so I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, so thanks everyone for tuning in, asking questions. Really excited for this set to come out on Arena tomorrow as of recording. And I will be doing a very long, very early stream tomorrow, uh, probably streaming for around 12 hours to get a jump on understanding the format and preparing to dive into my first archetype. So for anyone who's interested in uh, watching me tackle some drafts. That's 
that's what's going to be happening tomorrow. Obviously, anyone who's listening to this in podcast form rather than live, you missed it. <laughs> but you, you know, I'll be back next week to tell you what I've learned. So thanks again for listening. And I will be back next week as we start diving into format. There will not be a poll to determine what I discuss. It'll just be whatever I feel comfortable with um, since we will only be one weekend. That's it for now. I'll be back next week.